This afternoon, I'd like to share with you another passage from the Genjo Koan. And it's <clears throat> the passage in which Dogen gives us this striking image about awakening or enlightenment. And the reason I want to do that is, is I feel that the, the way that Dogen is conveying something to us about awakening gives us possibly a different sense of awakening and a different sense of the unfolding of the path that really might be, I want to point out, practically useful for your journey, practically useful for your exploration of this path of awakening. And I, I want to point out what I love about Buddhism, especially er, early Buddhism, is that at least the Buddha that I find in early Buddhism, what, what moves me so much about him is that him offering teachings that are meant, um, their main purpose is to free the heart and mind. And I like to distinguish that from uh, the main purpose being trying to figure out what's factually true in the world or ultimately true, true in the world. In some ways that's just a setup for more suffering, trying to figure that one out. <laughs> but, but there's something about uh, allowing ourselves to take on different perspectives or different narratives that might be helpful. So the passage that uh, I'd like to uh, look at together with you and give at least one possible, I think there's many possible ways of understanding this, <coughs> is him likening awakening or enlightenment to the moon reflected on the water. And so he says, he says, enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken. It's pretty amazing, right? There's the moon and it's not, it's actually not getting wet. And the, the water is not broken by the moon. And although the light of the moon is wide and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky are reflected in dewdrops on the grass or even in one drop of water. Enlightenment does not divide you just as the moon does not break the water. You cannot hinder enlightenment just as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. I, I find this to be a striking image that just in a dew drop, what a striking image that in a dew drop, we can see the reflection of the moon, the vastness of the moon. And remembering the moon so often is the symbol for awakening in the Zen tradition. It representing that which is limitless, that which is vast, uh, that which is um, beyond our limitations. So how to get a sense of this image that might, might be practical in some kind of way. I think one of the ways that I feel into this is, is that here is my life. It's just a dewdrop, right? It's this life, this human life that I'm thrown into. It's so limited. It's filled with so many limitations. It's so small in so many ways. And yet somehow within this limited world of my life, within this, this limited imperfect world of my life, Somehow right there, I can taste, I can touch, I can 
see the limitless moon. I don't have to step outside of it. It's right here. And maybe on this retreat, you've had small tastes of, the, of that, of just within this limited experience of being a human being, all the imperfections that come with it. Sometimes just those momentary experiences of just this, just the sound of the car or the bird or the sound of my voice, just this. And it's so simple that sometimes I feel like I can miss how powerful that is. Because what it reminds me is that to taste freedom and awakening, I don't have to wait for the day when my anxiety completely disappears. Or when we completely and wholeheartedly love ourselves all the time. Or waiting for the day when that health condition passes or when you no longer experience depression or waiting for the day where you feel like you belong all the time and there's a sense of wholeness and completeness in your heart waiting for the day when all your addictions and craving vanish waiting for the day for self-hatred and self-judgment to disappear forever or waiting for the day to meet that special person in your life. It's different than that. Oh, right now I can taste in my complicated, imperfect life. There's the moon, there's awakening, freedom right now. That's really different. Have you noticed the mind that's waiting for the day? Am I the only one that has a mind like that? And so much, that's what impels us to go to practice. Maybe it'll help me with my anxiety, depression, and health condition, and maybe it'll help me with all that stuff. I mean, I hope it does. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But I, I want to also point out that sometimes there can be a setup with that kind of mindset as well. Not that we have to leave it behind, but Dogen might also be giving us perspective that can be really helpful in the midst of all this. Because in Dogen's description of awakening, there's not a demand for de perfection. In some ways, it's seen that perfection is already here. It's just that we don't have the eyes to see it or the heart that truly knows how to touch it. This is quite radical. And I think even in our everyday lives, there can be a taste of this. There's so many ways to get a taste of seeing how awakening is like the moon reflected in the water, just like the moon reflected in a dewdrop. A couple of weeks ago, I was traveling uh, to lead a retreat in New Mexico and I was staying with a friend in New Mexico and um, she was sharing with me some of the work she'd been doing. She works with a faith coalition to work on uh, issues of immigrant justice. And uh, after many, many months of writing many, many letters to a detention center in Grants, New Mexico, the Cibola Detention Center, they had uh, been granted uh, 
entry into um, checking out the detention center. And there was about 400 um, undocumented immigrants in this uh, detention center. And they were quite intrigued by it because it was also at least what the detention center had said is that there was a unit, a wing for just for transgender people, quite unique. Yet when they got there, it was a horrific situation. I mean, if you can imagine 400 or 500 people with absolutely no representation. So that means 500 voiceless people. So of course the conditions are not so good because nobody can speak for these four or 500 people. Um, they weren't charged with anything. They had no idea how long they were going to be there, what was going to happen to their lives. And there we were, we were walking along the, actually the Rio Grande River as the sun was setting. And at the same time, as we were talking about it, there was something so sweet about that evening, so beautiful about the sunset and the river. And it doesn't mean that that troubling situation at the Cibola Detention Center went away, or that we somehow forgot about the need to you know, find lawyers to do pro bono work to represent. If you know any lawyers, let me know. <laughs> be really great to get uh, voices heard or to, to push for op-ed articles about a really actually a, a quite unknown detention center that is not um, really on the radar of, of anyone. And, you know, acknowledging and realizing our own privilege of not being in such a situation. And yet it was important to see the moon in the water, to see the beautiful sunset, and to simply walk together near the moving of the Rio Grande River. You know, I think being overwhelmed by such trouble really doesn't help anyone. That's probably part of the process. But I think that's what practice promises, is a different relationship to this troubled world. A different relationship in which we can maybe see the moon within it. To see the moon within the dewdrop of our imperfect troubled life and lives in our imperfect troubled world. And that's the trick, and you might even notice that on retreat, is that sometimes, right, we get so lost in this world of our problems and challenges that we don't see the moon. And there it is. It's amazing. It's so vast and limitless, even in the midst of such challenge. And please don't get me wrong, you know, the this other view of awakening, really the, the this model of cultivation that I was referring to last night in the question and answer, that too is a beautiful narrative. It's a it's a beautiful description of how the path unfolds, which is really the narrative of early Buddhism. Right? It is this foundational story that early Buddhism uses. 
that here is this mind that I start over here, you could say in the right-hand side, here's this mind with greed, hatred, and delusion. And there's a cultivation of mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion. And through that, there's an eradication of these unwholesome states of mind, these unwholesome qualities of heart. And the, and the heart and mind progress to there's less and less of that. Maybe when there's less anxiety, less depression, more freedom. And then finally, over here, the heart is free. It's this linear path, right? We start here, and then we finally traverse over here. And this is the image that the Buddha really uses around this narrative of cultivation. Like the, the story of the raft. As he says, suppose practitioners, there is a person journeying on a road and they see a vast expanse of water of which this shore, this shore is perilous and fearful while the other shore over here, right, linear path, is safe and free from danger. But there is no boat for crossing, nor there is a bridge for going over from this side to the other. So the person thinks this is a vast expanse of water and this shore is perilous and fearful, but the other shore is safe and free from danger. There is, however, no boat here for crossing, nor a bridge for going over from this side to the other. So suppose I gather reeds and sticks and branches and foliage and bind them into a raft. Now that person collects the reeds, sticks and branches and foliage and binds them into a raft and carried by that raft, laboring with hands and feet, they safely cross over to the other shore. This, this is a description of this, right? We start here, we build the raft of the Dhamma of these wholesome states of mind that free the mind and end up on the other side. As I said, I love this story. Don't get me wrong. It's a cool story. It's inspiring. It's the essence of the story about transformation. Maybe you have a similar story. You start on a path and you start over here on the right and then you traverse it to the left and you end up over here. trick is, is that if your mind is like my mind, boy, it can really do a number with that story. Linearity. Nothing wrong with the story, it's just how the mind gets entangled with it. I remember it was really, I remember hitting a wall about after a year, of, uh, after yeah, probably a year after I, I had gotten ordained in the Zen tradition. And I was practicing very diligently, very earnestly. It was Rinzai Zen too, so you know, probably a lot of striving. I was young. And uh, and what I realized is that this, my uh, my efforts, my diligent practice was so much primarily fueled by my sense of unworthiness, that something's wrong with me. Because I thought, you know, if I practice really hard, then something would no longer be wrong with me. Kind of makes sense, right? That's why we practice. 
and that's what it was. I was over here. Something's wrong with me. I'm over the worthy. And if I practice really hard, I'll take this linear path to over here where I'd be the kind person or the compassionate person or the wise person, the person with strong concentration and mindfulness. And it's true. At times I'd really feel like I was moving along. I'd have the experience of strong mindfulness or concentration or a sense of self-dissolving in some kind of manner. But as you probably noticed on retreat, then it would go away. Or maybe I have the experience of strong aversion or I get irritated with somebody. And then, boom, I was right back into the world of unworthiness or something's wrong with me because then there was an experience that confirmed that again. Oh, damn it, it's back again. There really is something wrong with me. Oh, really, I really am no good at this. And then I'd climb out of that hole again, a strong mindfulness concentration, feel like I can practice, and then boom, another experience. Dang it. Something's wrong with me. What am I doing wrong? Maybe if I learn a new technique, maybe if I try to pay attention to the breath a little bit differently, then, then it'll work. So going up again and boom. So hopefully you're seeing it. It's just like being on a hamster wheel. I've just around and around again. And it was really, it was just reinforcing the sense of wrongness or unworthiness. It's really the movement of dukkha rather than the movement of freedom. That can be the narrative. Maybe maybe if I practice hard enough, I can stop being a person who feels like they're not good enough or unworthy. And then I can become a person who feels like they're good enough and worthy. That's the, that's the story sometimes that gets hooked with linearity. Because it is. It's a linear progression, right? And so much of that's what the heart is hoping for. But really what it is, is it's just a perfection project that doesn't lead anywhere or the, pre- the, the, the project of never enough. And I feel like Dogen got it. He understood that sometimes there's a problem with thinking that the world is linear, that that might not be quite accurate in terms of the feeling sense of what we're doing here on this practice. Because it can be a setup for this never enough project or looking for some kind of perfection that comes from a linear path. And it's tricky. I, th- I think, you know, some of this is so fueled by, you could say, this modern world we live in by family and society of these messages, as we had mentioned last time, that are inherited. Your mind is society, society is mind. The messages that we get. There's this great poem by Billy Collins. It brings sweet humor to this whole thing. Really, it's a poem about kind of the subtle messages we get. So the, the title of the poem is My Favorite 17-Year-Old High School Girl. And just to set the stage for this poem, because it helps to imagine here is a parent or a caregiver, probably a parent, talking to their 17-year-old high school girl. 
So here's the here's what they're saying to their 17-year-old high school girl. Do you realize that if you had started building the Parthenon on the day you were born, you would be all done in only one more year? <laughs> of course, you couldn't have done that all alone, so never mind. You're fine just being yourself. Your love for just being you. But did you know that at your age, Judy Garland was pulling down $150,000 a picture, Joan of Arc was leading the French army to victory, and Blaise Pascal had cleaned up his room? No, no, wait, I mean, he hadn't invented the calculator. Of course, there will be time for all that later in your life, after you come out of your room, begin to blossom, or at least pick up all of your socks. For some reason, I keep remembering that Lady Jane Grey was Queen of England when she was only 15. But then she was beheaded, so never mind her as a role model. <laughs> a few centuries later, when he was your age, your age Franz, Franz Schubert was doing the dishes for his family, but that did not keep him from composing two symphonies, four operas, and two complete masses as a youngster. <laughs> But of course, that was in Austria at the height of romantic lyricism, not here in the suburbs of Cleveland. Frankly, who cares if Annie Oakley was a crack shot at 15 or if Maria Callas was debuted at, as Tosca at 17? We think you're special just being you, playing with your food and staring in the space. <laughs> By the way, I lied about Schubert doing the dishes, but that doesn't mean he never helped out around the house. <laughs> so sometimes those subtle messages that <laughs> were unworthy were not enough. That, that sense of that. And it does take on a collective dimension of, in some ways, never having enough. If you think of the collective dimension of consumerism so much being fueled by corporations, never having enough, never safe enough. It's, it's, it is um, shocking how large our military industrial complex is. It's uh, horrifying because we can be in this country never safe enough or never safe enough in the sense that we have the highest incarceration w rate in the world. And remembering, of course, this last one you know, happens around those oppressive, oppressive lines of who in the dominant society, the society has been deemed better than and who has been deemed less than. So it invades, it invades our practice. We take on a linear narrative and try to go from someone who is not enough or unworthy or something's wrong with me with somehow hoping for a promise of being perfect or complete in some kind of manner.
and it can be quite subtle. Actually, this is something so interesting to hear this really in the Theravada tradition. This comes from Ajahn Sumedho, who's really such, I, I found to be such an inspiring monastic. Um, and he talks about coming to notice this dynamic on a very subtle level in his, his own practice. And it's really this this subtle sense of needing to become somebody. He puts it this way. He says, when I started practicing meditation, I felt I was somebody who was very confused and I wanted to get out of that confusion and get rid of my problems and become someone who was not confused, someone who was a clear thinker, someone who would maybe one day become enlightened. That was the impetus that got me going in the direction of Buddhist meditation and monastic life. But then by reflecting on this position that, quote, I am somebody who needs to do something, I began to see it as a created condition. I began to see that, quote, I am somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future was this assumption that I had created. You say, this is the real assumption that Dogen wants to undermine. Because it's not about somebody who needs to do something in order to become enlightened in the future. Awakening's right here. It's, it's, right, it's right within the dewdrop. It's right within the imperfection and the limitation of your life right now. It doesn't happen in the future. He's really adamant about this. This is the thing that he wants to dispel. Back to, to Dogen here. So again, I want to point out, here's this story of early Buddhism. I start over here and it's linear and I s and end up on the other side over here. And Dogen's proposing a really a radically different story, not because the first story is wrong or bad, but just to offer a, a different perspective of what's, of what's going on in practice. In the moon drop, in the dew drop, the moon. And it's amazing, awakening, it doesn't, it doesn't burst, it doesn't divide you, as he says, it doesn't break the dew drop. and that we can't hinder enlightenment with our imperfections. What a relief. You cannot hinder enlightenment just as a, dude, as a drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. So what is the image that, the sense that the Dogen has of practice, the unfolding of practice? And I wanna share with you a, a, a description that we find in another another uh, fascicle of Dogen's or, uh, essay called Gyoji. And um, it, it, Gyoji literally could be uh, translated as doing the practice and keeping to it. I think a more 
Eckert one is the sense of ceaseless practice. And I want to share with you just a short passage from Gyoji because I think it, it gives us a different description other than the linear description. It says, the great way of Buddhas and ancestors invariable, invariably involves unsurpassed ceaseless practice. Or you could say in our terms what we've been talking about. It involves the unsurpassed continual willingness to be present. That's what we've been talking about. And this practice, you can even really replace it with this willingness to be present, rolls on in a cyclic manner without interruption. So it's not linear. It's not going from one place to another. It's a circle. And in this cyclic manner, this is what he says. He says, not a moment's gap has occurred in a practitioner giving rise to the intention, the intention to realize Buddhahood in this single moment, in the actual doing the training and the practice, in experiencing awakening, and in re realizing nirvana or nibbana. For the great way of ceaseless practice rolls on just like this. As a result, the practice is not done by forcing oneself to do it, and it is not done by being forced to do it by someone else. It is a ceaseless practice that is never tainted by forcing. The merits from this ceaseless practice sustain us and sustain others. Maybe again for us here, it's just the ceaseless willingness to be present with your experience. And so I want to uh, point out some things about this, right? Since it's circular, it's, we're not getting anywhere. I'm not getting anywhere, anywhere different than right now. There's nowhere to get because it's just a circle. And it's all happening right now. There's the intention for awakening. There's the practice. There is awakening that's happening right now. There's the full fruition of the practice. And in the next moment, it's the same thing. There's the intention. There's the practice itself. There's awakening. And in the next moment. And it's all happening here, not somewhere on a line. All of it right now. So this is different. This is this circle like this that's always coming back to right now and right now. And I think there's something so powerful about this to see that my freedom awakening is not located in some other place or some other time in the future. That awakening that is situated in place and time, you could say, is a, is a kind of conditioned awakening. Because really, this, this is the narrative of time. I start here and then I end up over here. And he's undermining that. And of course he has in the Genjo Koan, which I think is helpful, that, that phrase, there are those realizing beyond realization. So maybe a deepening, but I'm not getting anywhere. And this view, 
I actually find this so helpful because I have this mind that always wants to get somewhere other than here. It's made a whole life out of it. It's made a whole spiritual practice out of it. And Dogen is saying there might be something a bit deluded about that. And also, as I was pointing out, maybe a big setup with that kind of notion. Right? Because I'm just going to keep on getting hooked like there's something is wrong with me. Feel a little better at times, but then something's going to happen and then down that hole again. Or I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the day when. So just a, a practice to get a feeling for this, I think, which can be interesting in this. Um, actually, this kind of comes from Ajahn Sumedho, so it really comes from the Thai forest tradition, which again, I think it's a very interesting overlapping. And the way Ajahn Sumedho sometimes used to talk about what's happening in practice is that in a moment of practice, what's happening is it's simply the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. That's all that's happening. So in this moment where you hear the sound of my voice, how it's coming and it's going, how it arises and then it disappears. That's not me. That's, that's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. And I think it's a really wonderful thing to get a feeling sense of that. Oh, right now, there's that feeling of, of oh, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma or Kuan Yin knowing the Dhamma or Prajnaparamita knowing the Dhamma. Because it is, I think, quite true. It's not me knowing experience because I think so much of this practice is seeing that there's not really kind of fixed, some fixed self at the center of experience. It's just wakefulness right now that I'm touching in, uh, uh, touching into. This essential aspect of, of being, of being aware, really has nothing to do with me. Meanness is so confining. It's the immediacy of this. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it is good to you know, I used to sometimes bring an image to mind that gave me a feeling sense of just this, just this way of, of being, of this, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma in this way. And I want to say, it's the same exact practice that you're doing. You're noticing how a sound comes and goes. The mind gets lost in thought. There's a moment, oh, thinking, oh, remembering. Who's doing that? Oh, the Buddha is knowing that remembering is happening, that thinking is happening. Oh, interesting. Feeling the breath again, the mind gets lost. The same thing. It's all happening right here, but it's noticing what a foolish idea it is to think that I'm doing that. I remember, again, connected with Ajahn Sumedho. I think maybe why I connect it, I get so much out of this teaching, is it reminds me of um, many, many years ago. I think it was in 1990. I was at... Um, Amaravati Monastery, which is in uh, north of London, and Ajahn Sumedho was the abbot at that time, and I was vis visiting the monastery. And uh, after breakfast, I remember 
it was um, so interesting. He was, it was like he was giving, some of you know from the Hindu tradition, kind of giving darshan. So he, there he was kind of just up there sitting, just kind of smiling. And it was so kind of disturbing because I was wondering, what the hell is he doing up there? You know, he's kind of sitting there. And, um, and that's all he was doing. So he's sitting up there and then sometimes, um, so he wasn't really trying to entertain anyone or he didn't really have any kind of agenda or correct things. He was just hanging out. And sometimes somebody would come up and ask him a question and he would say some things. He might talk for a while and then was just silent. Another person might come up and offer their respects and bow to him. And then sometimes just sitting there. And there was there was something, you know, I was really young in my practice at that point. There was something so wonderful about being around that. Just this quality of just being there, being aware, responding. But it was like he didn't need to be somebody in that moment. It really had the sense of simply the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. So that's the Buddha aspect, that knowing aspect that's happening. And then the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. The Dhamma is just, as it said, it's visible here and now. It's the noticing of actually what is going on right now, how experience comes and goes, how it's just thinking or remembering. It's not as big of a story as I make it out to be or as real or true as I make it out to be. Oh, it's just an emotion kind of forming and then disappearing. That's knowing the Dhamma. It's knowing the unfolding of experience that we've been emphasizing. It's just that simple noticing that we want to keep at. I remember getting more of a sense of this. This is when I was... Um, Actually, here in the States, actually, um, actually, I just realized this. I think it was in San Jose. Has anybody been to the, I think, the Tathagata Meditation Center in San Jose? I think it's in San Jose. Uh, mostly for the Vietnamese and Burmese community there. But Saida Upandita used to, this Burmese teacher used to come and lead a, a month-long retreat there. And I think that was the first time I did a retreat there with him. And then I practiced with him in, in Burma. And the way they do... Um, practice discussions and discussions they don't call them practice discussions they call them interviews <laughs> and there was something i mean there's something incredibly intimidating interviewing with Saito Upandita he's he was known to be um he wasn't really a soft and fuzzy kind of teacher uh, like uh I just <laughs> i think the second or third interview I had with them as a Tathagata Meditation Center, um, I come in and I'm supposed to be reporting on what I'm noticing. And so as I begin to give my report on what I'm noticing, he's walking around opening and closing the windows like he's not even paying attention to me. You know, and the translator says, just go ahead, just go ahead and, and talk. But just, he did such a wonderful job. A lot of times he could give you the, the sense of like completely ignoring you. Like sometimes I remember going to be like clipping his fingernails or reading a book on Polly or something like that. <laughs> like, okay, okay, just do my practice. Um, but in some ways, that too was wonderful because uh, what I actually discovered, the greatest thing about those interviews with, with him was um, offering my report. 
because the interview was was actually put a little pressure for me to be mindful of what was going on so I could report you know what was going on in my practice and that was just the wonderful thing is is needing to just talk about how there was the the Buddha knowing the Dhamma, how how I was seeing experience unfold. And there was a particular way to talk about it. You know, sometimes you give a description of just the abdomen arising and falling or how a sound arose, if it was pleasant or unpleasant, if there was a reactivity or not, and how it disappeared. And there was something so rich about that. So in some ways, is sometimes uh, lack of instruction was very helpful because it reminded me the most instruction was my process of offering this to him. And he did offer instruction at times too, or questions that were really sometimes uh, very insightful. I also find this, uh, this Buddha knowing the Dhamma and also this sense of that the practice unfolds in a cyclical manner rather than a linear manner. I find it so helpful just to remember to begin again in my practice. Because so often the way practice can unfold is we might get some moments of mindfulness and then we have some kind of spinning off into some huge story where we have some huge emotion comes up and then we feel like we have to start all over again and like we've lost ground because that happened and what happened to my mindfulness? But in this model, it's like, oh, in this moment right now, there's awakening too. Oh, and then the next moment, there's a moment of awakening. It doesn't matter what just happened. When you have a, a, a sit where the mind has wandered the entire time and then the bell rings. Oh, there it is. There's the Buddha knowing the Dhamma when the bell rings. Just this. Not to be trapped by linearity. It begins right now in its completeness when the bell rings or the next moment after that. It doesn't matter if my mind's been wandering that entire sit or not. And I really invite you to have that sense of beginning again, not worrying about <coughs> the assessment, that linear assessment. So I invite you to, to play around with this quality of gyoji, ceases practice, that it happens all right now, not in a linear fashion. To begin to taste that just in your imperfect, troubled lives, there are these moments of just this that you can taste that keeps the practice going in a ceaseless manner so that we can stop waiting waiting for the day when. And with a, a poem that I think embodies some of what I've been talking about. And the title of the poem is Waiting by uh, uh, Lisa Lowitz. So she begins, You keep waiting for something to happen the thing that lifts you out of yourself, catapults you into doing all the things you've put off, the great things you're meant to do in your life, but never somehow quite get to. You keep waiting for the planets to shift, the new moon to bring news, the universe to align, something to give. 
Meanwhile, the pile of papers, the laundry, the dishes, the job, it all stacks up while you keep hoping for some miracle to blast down upon you, scattering the piles to the winds. Sometimes you lie in bed, terrified of your life. Sometimes you laugh at the privilege of waking. But all the while, life goes on in its messy way, and then you turn 40 or 50 or 60, and some part of you realizes you are not alone. And you find signs of this in the animal kingdom when a snake sheds its skin, its eyes glaze over, it slinks under a rock, not wanting to be touched. And when caterpillar turns to butterfly, if the pupa is brushed, it will die. And the, when the bird taps its beak hungrily against the egg, it's because the thing is too small, too small, and it needs to break out. And midlife walks you into that wisdom, that this is what transformation looks like, the mess of it. The tapping at the walls of your life, the yearning and writhing and pushing until one day, one day you emerge from the wreck, embracing both the immense dawn and the dusk of the body, glistening, beautiful, just as you are. Let's just sit for a moment here.